Green and Gold Forever. I'm Eric Drews, broadcasting from Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and I am flying solo this evening. Uh, Matt is not going to be joining us. He had some other commitments, and since it is the bye week, uh, we thought we'd take this opportunity to skip our normal uh, long episode with the two of us, and we would focus on something else that we've been wanting to do for quite some time, and that is revisit some of our early what-if segments. And uh, for those of you who do not know, What If is uh, one of our more popular segments that we have in which we take an event from Packers history, we alter it a little bit, and then we debate the ramifications. And we have some of our earlier episodes of What If posted on YouTube, and we haven't had a chance to really go over any of those comments in the past. And so I thought I'd take the opportunity during this bye week to revisit some of those early episodes of What If and read the comments and talk about uh, some of the comments that have been shared with us. So with that, uh, here is What If Revisited. What if the past had turned out differently? The Green Bay Packers have won the Super Bowl. I was told that playing in Green Bay was not an option. With the 24th selection in the 2005 NFL Draft, the Green Bay Packers select Aaron Rodgers, quarterback, California. And Mikowski appears hurt. Uh, Mikowski's in great pain, Ahmad. And reliable sources now tell CBS Sports that Parcells is very close to accepting a Green Bay Packers offer. Gentlemen, let me introduce to you the new head coach of the Green Bay Packers, Mr. Phil Bankston. What would the past look like? What would the future look like if? Let's begin with our first ever What If segment, which was what if the 2006 Green Bay Packers made the playoffs? Now, all of these that I'll mention, the links to these segments, uh, the YouTube links to these segments will be available uh, in the uh, description of this podcast uh, that you should see above it, I believe, on the Podbean page. So if you want to take a look at, or take a listen, rather, to any one of these segments that I mentioned, uh, you can do that there and kind of listen to what people have to say. So basically, the idea is the 8-8 eight eight Green Bay Packers somehow making the playoffs in 2006 and how that might have changed things. And if you want to take a listen, you can do that right now and hear what we had to say about it. But if not, we can get into uh, a couple of the comments that we had. Uh, Watch more uh, added, if the Packers make the playoffs in 2006, they become the first 8-8 eight and eight team to win the Super Bowl. And I assume that was meant to be a sarcastic comment, but yeah, there's no way the 2006 Green Bay Packers would have been winning any Super Bowl that year. Uh, there were some really good teams, one being the Chicago Bears in their own division, who likely would have destroyed the Green Bay Packers in an actual competitive game. I know the Packers beat them up pretty badly in the last week of the season, but they would have beat the Packers. Uh, Seattle was probably better. The Philadelphia Eagles were red hot going into the playoffs. And then you had, of course, Peyton Manning's Colts uh, in the Super Bowl waiting for them. So I don't think it would have turned out well for the Packers. They were a pretty bad team. They were lucky to be 8-8. Eight and eight. They're expected win-loss, according to a metric at uh, Pro Football Reference, was 6-10. and 10. They were outscored by 65 points. So, uh, no, I know you're probably being uh, a little facetious there, but there's no way that the Packers would have won the Super Bowl in 2006. Big Bob Johnson 1 also has a comment for us. And he says, Aaron Rodgers was ready to go for 2007. I think the way he completely turned the game around in Dallas that year proved that. I think if Brett leaves after 2006, the Packers win the Super Bowl in 2009 instead of 2010. Maybe even earlier with the good overall team we had in 2007. 
Now, that's a very arguable point, uh, honestly, uh, Big Bob Johnson one. Uh, I love all these YouTube names, by the way. Um, I think that it's tough to say that the Packers, the, the Aaron Rodgers sample size for 20 uh, or 2007 was really only half a game. So uh, trying to parlay that into the rest of the season uh, becomes a little bit difficult. But I agree. I think that the Packers were pretty talented. They had a good, uh, solid defense in 2007. They had uh, an effective special teams. They had a really explosive offense, as proved with Brett. I'm not sure if Rodgers would have been that great in 07. He was great in the preseason, and the previous two years he was pretty bad. So it appeared even to the untrained eye that Aaron Rodgers had turned the corner in the 2007 offseason, and he played very well in his, his one game that he got to play in. In his first three seasons, he appeared in one game in each of the three for any significant playing time. In 05, he was horrible. In 06, he was even worse, uh, playing on a broken foot, if I remember correctly. And then in 07, he was great. So you can make that argument. I don't know if I agree with you that they would have been 13-3, and three. Um, and as far as the 2009 Super Bowl, that season, as we've mentioned many times, it all depends on what happens with Brett Favre. If Brett stays retired, then you can make an argument that the Packers are a better team in 2009 than just about anybody. Of course, the Saints are a tough draw there, but, uh, you know, the 2009 Packers were good as it was, and the main reason that they weren't able to achieve some great things, in my opinion, was the fact that Brett Favre and the Vikings were in the way. Uh, if they have Tavares Jackson, the Packers likely go 13-3 and that year and maybe get home field advantage throughout the playoffs, although New Orleans rested their starters in the, the end of the season when they didn't need to play anymore, so they might have won more. But anyways, that's a good point. It's hard to argue, but I, I, I don't know if I would go that far, but it's certainly something you could consider. What if episode number two uh, dealt with a event that has plagued Packers fans for years, and that is, what if the Green Bay Packers hadn't drafted Tony Mandrich in 1989. That draft being incredibly famous, the Packers having the second pick in the draft and selected Tony Mandrich out of Michigan State, who almost everyone expected to be an all-time great offensive tackle. Prior to Mandrich, the Dallas Cowboys selected uh, Troy Aikman, who I, I don't remember if he amounted to anything. After Mandrich, the Lions drafted some guy named Barry Sanders. Not sure what happened to him. The Kansas City Chiefs picked up Derek Thomas. You know, who the heck is that? And then the Atlanta Falcons drafted Deion Sanders. Uh, obviously, uh, a total bust there. So the Green Bay Packers, um, <laughs> obviously uh, joking around a little bit. There's no Matt here, so it's going to be me making lame jokes for most of this episode. But... The Packers obviously picking a horrible player uh, comparatively as the other. I believe Derek Thomas is in the Hall of Fame, and if he's not, he probably should be. So four Hall of Fame caliber players around Tony Mandrich. The argument I made in the episode, if you listen, is that although that's very frustrating, it's somewhat of a blessing in disguise because Dallas got Troy Aikman. They were ahead of the Packers, so there's not much you can do about that. While the Lions, Chiefs, and Falcons won absolutely nothing with any of those three great players, whereas the Packers hit rock bottom and rebuilt into a great, great team in the 90s, uh, a couple of plays away from perhaps a a dynasty in the 90s, which is one of the what-ifs we'll get to a little bit later on in this episode. But we had some really good comments about this here, and uh, both of them are from J.B. Spitzfun, uh, S-P-T-F-N. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but we'll call you J.B. 
JB says, if Detroit would have gotten the number one pick in 1989, this is what happens. The Lions draft Troy Aikman. Don't see them passing him up. They had nobody at the position. Chuck Long was their number one pick three years earlier, and he was a bust. Number two, the Cowboys, Tony Mandrich. They thought about taking him over Aikman, uh, which is true. The Many, many people thought Tony Mandrich was a can't-miss prospect that year. So it's not like you can blame the Packers too much. Uh, And uh, JB adds, number three, the Packers. It gets fun here. I can't believe that my team, Denver, trades up to this slot from the 13th pick to give Elway a feature back. They trade Sammy Winder, Ricky Nateel, the 13th overall pick, and a second rounder that year for a third pick, which they use on Barry Sanders. Anything goes the way it did or everything goes the way it did until pick 13 in Green Bay. The Pack trade down with Cleveland, who wanted Eric Metcalf. The Pack get a 1989 second rounder and a 91st rounder. A pick At pick 20, the Pack take David Williams, the left tackle from Florida. He was better than Mandridge. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say JB is John Bellish, who follows us on Facebook, and he's a Denver fan, and he's been one of our great people. So, John, I'm sorry it took me so long to get to this comment, but you're throwing a lot at me here, so let me try to process it all for a minute here. I'm going to try to get up the 1989 NFL draft uh, in front of me here and take a look at kind of what you were talking about. So there was some, uh, after that Hall of Fame-laden first four of five picks, and Derek Thomas is in the Hall of Fame, uh, there was a pretty good lull in there with some decent players. Uh, None of them ever pro bowlers. Actually, I can't even, other than Eric Hill, I don't really, and Broderick Thomas, um, I don't really recognize any of the other names. Donnell Wolford, Trace Armstrong, Eric Metcalf, and Jeff Langham all go to the Cardinals, Bears, and Browns, uh, and Jets. Or I'm sorry, Bears, Browns, and Jets. All were Pro Bowlers. Uh, the Steve Atwater uh, went at the 20th pick where the Packers were. Uh, so, I'm trying to think of the Packers had safety. They had Mark Murphy uh, in 88. They had Ron Pitts. You know, I know you're a Denver fan, and I'm sure he's near and dear to your heart, but wouldn't it have been something if the Green Bay Packers would have selected Steve Atwater? And I know that changes a lot of things because then likely the Packers don't get Leroy Butler. So um, I I would concede that I think Atwater was a little better than Leroy Butler, but um, that's an interesting point. I think if the Packers... uh, Well, if they had Sammy Winder, Ricky Natil with that offense, I don't think it would have added very much... Um, You're a Denver fan, so I might have to concede to you a little bit here. I'm going to try to look up Ricky Natil because I can't remember. I know he caught a touchdown in the Super Bowl against the Redskins, and he was touted as the one of the members of the Three Amigos, but I can't remember how good he was over the course of his career. Um, Okay, Ricky Natil. Yeah... Uh, he's definitely maybe if they would have thrown Vance Johnson in there instead. Uh, Sammy Winder is another one of those guys who I'm sure Denver fans love, but he I don't, I don't know if he's a can't miss prospect. Honestly, John, I, I like your idea, but Sammy Winder, Ricky Natiel, you would have had to throw in some more value than that uh, in order to get that that Packers third pick. I think I don't think the Packers would have used Deion San- or would have used the pick on Deion Sanders or excuse me on Barry Sanders, which I assume you're talking. They just drafted Brent Fullwood two years prior, so I don't think they would have drafted Barry Sanders. And I said that in the original episode. I think they likely draft 
either Derek Thomas or Deion Sanders with that pick. Uh, Obviously, defensive guys, as talented as they are, I don't think that changes the Packers' history all that much, and I think Deion definitely leaves Green Bay when his contract is over. Derek Thomas, you can make an argument that he would have left before somebody like Reggie White would have came anyways. I think the Packers' history, even with your scenario, probably doesn't change all that much. And I think Denver's really doesn't change all that much either. Um, or, oh, you, you're giving Denver Barry Sanders. Well, that changes everything, I guess, for Denver. Uh, if I want to address that a little bit, maybe Denver makes the playoffs in, in 19, or they had missed it in 88. I'm sorry there. So in 1989, they had the best defense in the NFL. Uh, they would have had Barry Sanders instead of Bobby, Bobby Humphrey at running back. So you can make an argument for that offense being much better. I mean, Denver was clearly the best team in the AFC that season. Man, that's that's tough. I still don't think they're good enough to have beaten San Francisco, uh, honestly, in 1989. San Francisco was something else. Uh, they had the third best defense in the NFL. They had the highest scoring offense. Denver, you know, feasting on some pretty poor teams. That was one of the weaker years of that AFC drought between Super Bowl wins. So I'll say Denver puts on maybe a better showing that year, maybe dominates a little bit more, but I think it doesn't change a whole heck of a lot. And after that point, their defense kind of got old and bad, and and I, I think Denver's pretty much the same. Uh, honestly, uh, maybe you don't get Terrell Davis, but then maybe Barry wins a Super Bowl. So I don't know. I don't. I don't want to spend a, a ton of time on Denver since this isn't uh, orange and light blue forever, or navy blue and dark orange, or whatever the actual official names are for them. But I appreciate you you leaving the comment, and you're always uh, leaving great comments for us. So definitely appreciate that. Episode 3 that we addressed for Green and Gold Forever was what if the 2002 Packers had gotten the number one seed? And just to recap very quickly, if you're not going over to listen to the old segments or don't remember what we said in the old segments, the Packers had the inside track on the last Sunday of the season to be the the first seed in the NFC in 2002. They had the Eagles lose the week before, or the I'm sorry, the day before to the New York Giants, allowing the Packers an opportunity to get this spot in the playoffs. And they promptly went to New York to play the Jets, who were playing with their season on the line, and they got absolutely obliterated. They lost 42 to 17. They made Chad Pennington look like Joe Montana, and they limped into the playoffs with a ton of injuries. Had to play six days later, and then got crushed again by Michael Vick and the Falcons in in one of the more famous playoff games. And, we had a couple of uh, comments, I think, by John again. Uh, one of them said, if the Packers win in 2002, Favre probably retires a few years earlier, and the 2007 season might not have happened. Favre actually had a press conference reserved right after that Falcon game in 2002, and we actually got excused from study hall. I was in high school at the time, and I got excused from study hall to go watch this press conference because uh, I had asked, and they knew I was a big football fan, and I was expecting Brett Favre to retire. That was the the rumor all morning, and it didn't happen. He just kind of talked about some random things in the game and things like that, and it never uh, materialized. So if the Pack win the Super Bowl in 2002, I, I don't think it changes all that much. I think Favre is still a flip-flopper. Um <sighs> If anything, like we mentioned in the episode, it really changes a lot of things as far as Mike McCarthy is almost certainly not the head coach of the Green Bay Packers if Mike Sherman wins a Super Bowl. He might still be the head coach of the Packers today. It, well, 
yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I believe in that. But he certainly would have been long enough for Mike McCarthy to have been hired elsewhere. And let's say Sherman flames out in 08 or 09. Who knows who the Packers would have hired to replace him? So I don't think Favre retires earlier. Uh, I think 07 might not happen because Mike Sherman's still the head coach more so than than because Favre is not there. And then on the second part of that episode. Uh, we did have Watch More uh, add a comment that said, "Thanks for rec- re- uh, recollecting this season for us, guys. The 0104 run of the Packers often gets forgotten, but they were fascinating years for the Green and Gold." I try to convince Matt of this almost every time we're talking that the Mike Sherman years, although frustrating at times, were certainly something that shouldn't be forgotten for the Green Bay Packers. They had two 12 and four seasons, they had two 10 and six seasons, four straight playoff berths, three straight division titles. And I think they get a little bit of a bad rap. They certainly had a good team. I loved their power run game with Amon Green. So I definitely feel these guys deserve a little bit more credit than they get uh, from your average Packer fan. I'll add John's comment who says, The Jets went crazy at the end of the year. I'm a Denver fan and earlier that month the Broncos went to Giants Stadium and should have defeated the Jets. That team and the team that the Pack and Colts played were two different teams. If they would have defeated Oakland, they might have defeated Tennessee at LP Field, but I don't see the Jets defeating Tampa. And you make a good point. They were the popular dark horse pick in the playoffs that year. In fact, I remember people picking the Jets in large numbers to beat the Raiders in the second round of the playoffs, and then they were tied at halftime, and the Raiders ended up beating them 30-10, to if I recall. So... People were really on that, and people thought Chad Pennington was the next new star, and whether it would be injury or complete sheer boredom caused by a Chad Pennington-run offense, it never materialized. But, yeah, I was not a big fan of Pennington. I thought his style of play was way too conservative and boring. Uh, He beat a lot of teams, throwing a lot of check-down passes. I know that's obviously narrowing down his game a little too much, but I was somewhat relieved to see that Chad Pennington did not become the next big thing in the NFL. Although you could say see his influence all over the place, as we've mentioned many times on the show, of quarterbacks completely uh, being conservative regardless of the game situation. But that's a talk for another day. On episode four of What If, and that was What If the Green Bay Packers had hired Bill Parcells in 1992? And around the first or second round of the 1991 playoffs, all of the pregame shows were abuzz with the talk of Bill Parcells agreeing to coach the Green Bay Packers. And it never materialized. I believe I mentioned it in the episode, but uh, unfortunately I, I researched those episodes quite a bit before we do them. And then some of that tends to fade. And this one was one that was released over a year ago. So I'm sure I have better details about why that might not have happened in the actual episode that you can find in the in the description for this episode. But what if Bill Parcells had not been hired in, or had been hired by the Packers in 1992? And John leaves us a great comment that says, how far affairs with Parcells would be a major factor in how the Packers would have done? Although I think that Bill would have left after a while because he wanted to shop for some of the groceries, and that was Wolf's job in Green Bay. With Bill in Green Bay, maybe the Bucks hire Holmgren instead of Weish. If Mike succeeds there, he may have stayed longer because he may have had a better chance to wear both hats there. So you bring up a couple of things, and I think we mentioned in the episode that we definitely think that Bill Parcells would have left after a while. He might have not even stuck it out as long as he did in New England, which was four seasons. So it would be interesting to see what would have happened. I think that Favre still probably would have emerged with Bill Parcells. If you get him in 1992, it changes a lot of things. Maybe he tries to 
push Daryl Thompson as more of his workhorse back or Vince Workman or whoever he had there. Uh, it changes really a lot about the way the team played where it would have been more of a running back based offense. Maybe he sees Favre as more expendable because Holmgren, his offense was so based, especially in the early years, on the pure West Coast offense. Those 92-3 and Packers were almost nauseating with how many short passes and quick outs and throws to the flat and quick throws to the tight end they threw. It's not quite the downfield Packer offense that they had in 95 through 98 in Holmgren's last years. The 92-93 Packers were a short, dunk, dink, dunk offense. So it would have been interesting to see how Parcells would have done it. But then again, as we mentioned in the episode, you think of Bill Parcells with rushing Curtis Martin and Joe Morris and O.J. Anderson, Rodney Hampton, those guys, and he led the league in pass attempts a bunch of years with Drew Bledsoe, so he probably would have played to his strengths, and you can make an argument that the, the game with Favre would have been somewhat the or Favre's career early on would have been somewhat the same. Uh, so I, I, I don't... I, I, I'm sorry, I, I can't remember exactly what I said in the episode, but I feel like that's a major factor, but I think Favre still would have emerged as one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL. Maybe... Um, I, I guess I don't know, but I think I think Favre's is still okay. People forget, like, I don't know if I mentioned it exactly in this episode. I, I hate to keep saying that, but people think that they've completely bought into the NFL network and NFL films narrative that Favre was this loose cannon player who was a turnover prone and not very good in his early years and then blossomed into this MVP. And the fact of the matter is he had one of the highest quarterback ratings in the NFL in 1992. He only had 13 interceptions. He was really, really good his first year and he really didn't know what he was doing yet. So I think that is overstated. Favre as a raw talent is much better than anybody ever gives him credit for in the early 90s. And as far as Mike Holmgren as a buck, I think um, that that's tough to say, too. What, he would have had a Vinny Testaverde for that first year. Um, yet, Tampa had a tough time with a lot of different people down there. And I know Sam Weish wasn't a huge success with Cincinnati. He got him to the Super Bowl, but he also had a 3-13 and season in 91. He had some other rough years for him in 87. Missed the playoffs with a pretty good team in 1989. So he was a pretty good coach, and he couldn't do anything down there. So I don't know what Holmgren would have been able to do down there necessarily. I think they would have been a little bit better. Uh, that's really hard to say uh, what would have happened there. So I, I think I mentioned the, those points somewhat in the episode, but uh, it's it's hard to say uh, what would have happened with Holmgren uh, if he would have had a better chance or not. I think it would have been somewhat similar. I think the Bucks would have been a little bit better. They had a decent team in 95. Um, okay team in night. Well, I don't know, 93, 94, they still lost double-digit games. By the way, I've been watching a lot of the older not older, but like mid-90s football lately, and I have some Bucks games with Trent Dilfer, and um, he's might be the worst quarterback I've ever seen in uh, 95 and early 96. He is just dreadful, and I know he's a great analyst on the ESPN, but it's almost harmed what I think of him being reminded how bad he was in those years. Um, I, I know you can analyze the game effectively without having been great at it. Uh, otherwise, half of the, you know, Actually, 90% of the media wouldn't be employed. But still, with that being said, ugh, 
he he sucked <laughs> in in his the first part of his career. I uh, don't know why I added that there, but I did. A uh, couple left here before we wrap this one up. The fifth what if we had was what if the Packers had won Super Bowl 32? And that one got quite a bit of comments. Of course, John uh, commented on that being a fan of the uh, of the Broncos and he comments, uh, the Broncos would have still won the next year, and with only one ring, maybe Elway goes back in 1999, and the Broncos beat the Rams for his second ring before retiring. As a result, uh, Terrell Davis plays longer, gets 10,000 yards, retires in 2005, and goes into the Hall of Fame in 2011. And without a ring, Dick Vermeil doesn't resign after the 99 season. He comes back for the 2000 season, and when that doesn't result in a title, he comes back in 2001, and the Rams beat New England in Super Bowl 36. Also, while the 96 pack were better than the 97 pack in some ways, they weren't in other ways. For example, the 97 team had a better O-line and running game, and they had Darren Sharper in 1997. Also, I don't think that the pack were better than Denver that year. Before that Super Bowl, I looked at the rosters, and I came to the conclusion that the Broncos had more potential Hall of Famers than Green Bay did. The Packers had a good team that year, but there is no way they become a dynasty. Okay, obviously we're going to have some fan emotions here that are going to dominate this a little bit. Uh, first of all, as far as the talent levels between 97 and 90, uh, the 97 Packers and the 97 Broncos, I, I agree. And I believe I mentioned that somewhat in the episode that the 97 Broncos were an 11-point underdog in that game almost entirely because of the pitiful showing of previous AFC teams. They were the highest scoring team in the league that year. I believe they had a top six defense uh, that year. And they were a very, very good team. And so I completely think that the 11-point spread was ridiculous and had nothing to do with the 97 Broncos. It had more to do with the Buffalo Bills and the 1989 Broncos and the 96 Patriots and some of the weaker teams that were getting their clocks cleaned in the Super Bowl. So I think the talent level was close. I still think that the Packers... I don't know. It's hard to say. I think that it's it's pretty much in 97 a wash. I think the better game is the 96 Packers against the 98 Broncos, which then we have a much closer argument because the 96 Packers defense was much more dominant than the 98 Broncos. So those, those that might be a better battle for all-time great teams, both of which I think are comfortably in that uh, top third, probably top quarter of Super Bowl champions. I will always argue that the Packers... Uh, leading the NFL in points scored and points allowed, allow- allowing the fewest yards on defense, only uh, the fifth highest yards accumulated. I think those 96 Packers are one of the top eight Super Bowl champions ever. Uh, the 98 Broncos I'd have to look at a little bit more closely con- comparatively to other teams before I, I judge them, but they're certainly in the top quarter of Super Bowl champions. But uh, yeah, as far as the 97 team being better or worse, I think that Denver did win. But it's not like had those two teams played ten times that one would have won more than six times. I mean, those teams were very, very closely matched. And as far as there's no way they become a dynasty, I'm not sure how far we said of them being a dynasty. Uh, Back-to-back Super Bowls, I don't know if you consider your 97-98 Broncos a dynasty, but if the Packers beat Denver, you know, they're they're certainly in the argument for the team of the 90s having... Uh, so much success as they did, probably Dallas still gets the nod, but I mean, there's something to be said for that. And as far as your other comments, gosh, I don't know how I can even comment on some of those. If if Elway comes back in 99, 
Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, Elway being there maybe changes things. Terrell Davis, he had quite an injury history, and a lot of it uh, had to do with that originally devastating injury in 1999. I still don't know if I can get him to 10,000 yards and all the way to 2005, but I think regardless, and maybe that's somewhere where we could find common ground, regardless of, of whether or not he gets to 2005, I think as is, Terrell Davis' career as it stands today is worthy of strong uh, consideration of a Hall of Fame bid. And the Dick Vermeil thing too. I don't know, and I don't know if the '99 Broncos beat the Rams because that defense in '98 was pretty uh, suspect at times. Uh, let me just look. They were well. They had eighth in in points allowed, so they they were okay, but certainly not as dominant as some of those other teams. I think the the '99 Rams. They're tough because they had like the worst schedule in the history of a Super Bowl winner. Uh, people want to put them as this dominant team, and they were, but most of their schedule was against teams that were like four and twelve and five and eleven. They had a pitiful divi- division, and then they played the AFC Central, who was abysmal that year. So their schedule sucked. So I don't know um, about that one as far as the Rams are concerned. That would have been a heck of a game, and. Yeah, you're you're putting a lot out there that really we don't really know anything about. Uh, I I I can't really argue against it, but I can't really argue for it either. There's too many unknown variables. Dick Vermeil, if he coaches to, and and even Dick Vermeil coaching in a 2001, I don't know if he's Dick Vermeil gets this reputation as being this great great coach because he won a Super Bowl, and the, the fact of the matter is, there's coaches that are much better than Dick Vermeil was. He, he had two horrible seasons with the Rams before he found lightning in a bottle in 1999. And with the Eagles, he was consistent, but he was never better than Dallas. He was never better than um, the Washington Redskins. Uh, he, he was a consistent playoff team with the Eagles, but I mean, I'm trying to think of a career that's even similar to his. And... I think Marty Schottenheimer, honestly, is a more consistent coach than Dick Vermeil was. Uh, Dick Vermeil is Jeff Fisher is almost the perfect. He would be Dick Vermeil if Kevin Dyson had gotten a few more yards in Super Bowl 34. A guy that everybody just thinks is this great, great coach, and he's missed the playoffs more than he's made it over the course of his career. So Dick Vermeil, I think, is a little bit overrated if we're going to go to that. So I don't think him being it on the Rams in 2001 really changes a whole lot as far as I think them being able to beat Bill Belichick. As far as 2000, uh, their defense sucked that year, one of the worst of all time, and their offense was one of the best of all time. I don't think that changes. I still think they're about the same, and, and you don't seem to think that either. So, uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time on that, uh, those comments, but uh, I get jazzed up talking about this stuff. So there's my uh, comment there. We also had Z71 Pack, who said if the Packers had won Super Bowl 32, John Elway would not have won a Super Bowl. A Packer history might not be that different other than a perfect 5-0 and Super Bowl record, but the great John Elway would not have a ring, and probably the 98 Broncos would not have won Super Bowl 33. Yeah, it's hard to say. A lot of the Broncos' success in 98, you would think, has to be attributed to their success the year before, although they might have been more galvanized losing Super Bowl 32 and coming back the next year. There's no denying that they were one of the most, if not the most talented team in the NFL both of those years. So I think they still could have won in 1998. The Packers team did not change very much because of the Super Bowl loss uh, versus a win, so I think the 98 team is still probably a step down. The Vikings were an absolute juggernaut. Uh, I I don't recall what I said in the actual um, 
uh, in the actual podcast, but I'm not necessarily strongly convinced uh, that the 1998 season goes all that differently depending on the uh, Super Bowl in 1997. And the final what if that we're going to go over today is what if Don Mikowski hadn't gotten hurt in 1992? Mikowski getting hurt in one of the more famous games in Packers history. He was, of course, replaced by Brett Favre, who led a come-from-behind victory, including a game-winning touchdown to win by one point with less than a minute remaining. And it really catapulted the Brett Favre-Mike Holmgren era. And if Mikowski doesn't get hurt, that changes a lot of things, and that's what we discuss in that episode. So we had a great commenter by the name of GM Redline, and he had a number of things to say about this, so I will just read them all here. Ron Wolf gets a lot of credit for making the trade for Favre, but I think it's possible that people wouldn't even know who Brett Favre was without Mikowski's injury. At the time, many people considered Don Mikowski the next coming of Joe Montana. Mikowski didn't have the talent like Montana, but he was big on preparation and perfecting his game. Mikowski would have flourished in the West Coast offense if he would have stayed healthy. Favre didn't fit the traditional West Coast mold. Most people would contribute Favre's unorthodox style to some of the success he enjoyed throughout his career in the NFL. I disagree. Although the gunslinger mentality makes for great sports center highlights, I also or I think a traditional West Coast quarterback would have gotten more success in Green Bay than Favre. Also, I am not sure where you got your information on the relationship between Favre and Sharp, but those two players were not friends. It would be easy to make a case that Favre's style may have contributed to Sharp's injury problem and shortened his career. Favre was never known for his accuracy, and he was never afraid to lead a receiver into a big hit. There was never a year where Favre was better than his team. Favre didn't lead the Packers to the Super Bowl in 1996. He needed, he just needed to show up and not screw up. I think the Packers would have had the same success in the mid-90s with Mikowski as their quarterback. Mikowski did not have the durability needed to be an elite quarterback in the NFL. He may have never been great, but I could have made a case that the Packers would have been more, had more success in the 2000s with another quarterback, which leads me to the next what-if you should do. What if the Packers would have let Mike Holmgren take over at GM and head coach after the 1998 season? Uh, maybe we can get to that as an impromptu what-if. But first, I will. <laughs> there's a lot to take in there. Um, the first thing I will say, with all due respect to GM Redline, You need to watch more Brett Favre in the 1990s. If you think that Favre didn't lead the Packers to the Super Bowl in 1998, I don't know when the last time you've seen any of those games were. Without a doubt, their defense was huge in that team being good that year. But Brett Favre was phenomenal in all all of those years, in Holmgren's peak years. He had 38 touchdowns in 1995 and 39 in 1996. It may not sound much today when Drew Brees is throwing for 40 a year and Aaron Rodgers is getting that every season and Peyton Manning and Tom Brady are getting that every season. Those were the third and fourth highest totals of all time in 1996, his 96 and 97 season. He and Dan Marino dominated all of the single season records at that time. Favre was unbelievable in those seasons. So I think you are not giving him enough credit as far as having more success with Don Mikowski, I, I, <laughs> I don't think so. Many people consider Don Mikowski the next coming of Joe Montana for one year, and then they saw, even when Mikowski, people blame the injury. The rotator cuff certainly derailed his career. But prior to the rotator cuff injury, he had 10 touchdowns and 12 interceptions. So he wasn't playing all that great in 1990. After the injury, we're talking about Mikowski getting injured in 92. Um, 
he was injured a bunch in 1991 as well. That didn't have as much to do with his rotator cuff. He was terrible in 1991. He got benched for Mike Tomzak, who never all that great of a quarterback. So I don't, I don't think there's any way they have more success with Don Mikowski. I think, as we said in the episode, I think this offsets or derails Favre's career for a little bit, but I think Favre eventually overtakes him. He was a pro bowler his first two years in Green Bay. So you might think that this narrative about Brett Favre being a gunslinger, it's not true. It is not true. Go back and watch the games. He was a game manager in 1992, and he was one of the best in the game at it. He very rarely turned the ball over. They ran a very simple offense that was almost a lot of the same plays every single time. I mean, you look at there's some touchdown videos of Brett Favre on the internet, and if you go and see his 1992 touchdowns to Sterling Sharp, a lot of them are incredibly similar. And as far as our information about, I, I don't know if we claimed in the episode that we thought Favre and Sharp were friends. He certainly was forcing the ball to Sterling Sharp, but that wasn't something that was new to the Packers because they did a ton of that even before Brett Favre was the quarterback. And I'm just going to look up the stats here. In 1989, if we're talking when Don Mikowski was the quarterback, Sterling Sharp had 90 receptions, and the next closest was running back Keith Woodside with 59. So he had a quarter of the receptions for the Packers in 1989. Uh, In 1990, uh, it was a little bit more balanced, but still a huge percentage. He was the only guy over 600 yards receiving, and he had 1,100. And so in 1991, looking at it again here, Sterling Sharp had 69 receptions. The next closest was Vince Workman with 46. They only completed 262 passes that year. So that's roughly, that's more than a quarter of the team's receptions were from Sterling Sharp. And then in 1992, once Brett Favre got there, Sterling Sharp had a third of the receptions, but it's not a huge amount different. Uh, They threw it to to Sharp a bunch, but it wasn't like it was all over the middle. It was a lot of short stuff. And so, again, I I think you're just misremembering or or buying in a little bit to the narrative of NFL films about what Brett Favre was. They certainly uh, forced the ball to Sterling Sharp a lot, but it was not because... Um, of a, I, I don't know what you're getting at as far as the bad relationship. I think their relationship was completely irrelevant. I don't think Favre's style contributed to Sterling Sharp's injury problem in the least. Maybe it was the short offense. Sterling Sharp's style of play was always very smash mouth, very in your face, run after the catch. That was not new with the Mike Holmgren, Brett Favre offense. And I can't remember other than a couple of times where Favre intentionally led Sterling Sharp into any big hits. He certainly took those when he was running over the middle more and running short more with that West Coast offense. But that that's not Favre forcing him into coverage. Robert Brooks took far many, or far more huge hits on the other end of Brett Favre passes than Sterling Sharp did. And obviously his career, uh, he ended up being banged up as well. But that Favre style maybe wasn't great to wide receivers, but Mikowski's I don't think was either. Mikowski and Favre were very similar, but Favre was better. There's no way you can watch those games with a fresh set of eyes and think that Don Mikowski at any point in his career was better than Brett Favre was. Uh, as far as the what if, what if they would have let Mike Holmgren take over as GM, uh, GM Redline, uh, maybe he's a GM himself, maybe he is Mike Sherman or Don Mikowski, uh, himself said, I believe Mike Holmgren was ready to move in a different direction at quarterback. Uh, 
I, I don't even know how I continue after that. If you act, honestly think that Mike Holmgren was considering getting rid of Brett Favre after the 1998 season, but I'll go on. You, you stopped me in my tracks there. The Packers had drafted Matt Hasselbeck, and Holmgren saw what his offense was capable of with a talented quarterback who did not turn the ball over. Every team needs to rebuild. Just think of the trade value of Favre at the time. Instead, the Packers let Holmgren leave to Seattle, hired Ray Rhodes for one year, and then turned everything over to Mike Sherman. Why in the world would the Packers give Mike Sherman full control of the team when they would not give it to Holmgren? There's only an- one answer, Brett Favre. Holmgren went to a bad Seattle team, traded for Hasselbeck, turned them into a playoff team, and made it to the Super Bowl in 2005. During that same time frame, the Packers never rebuilt won a bunch of regular season games, but never made it back to the NFC Championship game. Just think of what Holmgren would have been capable of in Green Bay. I do agree that Holmgren probably would have been better. Um, uh, would have, well, I, see, I don't even know that. You give a lot of credit to Mike Holmgren for that Seattle Super Bowl team. He gave up his GM duties after the 2002 season because they stunk when he was the general manager. Uh, they went 9-7 and seven and won a really bad division in uh, 1999. They were 6-10 and 10 in 2000. In 2001, they were 9-7 and seven and missed the playoffs, and they were 7-9 and nine in 2002, and he gave up his GM duties. Matt Hasselbeck was pretty bad their first couple of years, and honestly, he was never, even Brett Favre's down years with Mike Sherman, Hasselbeck was never as good, and I think, and I'm sorry to put words in your mouth or whatever, but Brett Favre almost needs a team to come in and rebuild his reputation. People act like he's this bum, like he's Jay Cutler without the production. This guy was great. I don't think he's... I think the Packers, I will stand on record and said it. it is the same today as it was in 2008 that I think they made the right move to move on with Aaron Rodgers. But the the fact that people think in 2013 that Brett Favre was this kind of... He was riding the success of Mike Holmgren's great teams needs to seek out some Packer games from the Holmgren era and from the Sherman era and realize that this guy was one of the best quarterbacks of all time. Um, I don't know where I would put him if it was top 10, if it was top 5. Um, I'm not even comfortable saying without charting it out that I think he's top 10, but he's certainly top 15 and he's better than Hasselbeck and he's better asleep than Don Mikowski. So I don't know what games you're watching. Um, There's no way that the Packers had any interest in getting rid of Brett Favre after the 1998 season. I know he threw a lot of interceptions, but a lot of guys did back then. People now are looking at the statistics and they're seeing Aaron Rodgers throw single-digit interceptions every year. Same with Tom Brady. That was not the norm in 1998. Favre threw a lot of picks, but it wasn't out of the ordinary, and he also threw way more touchdowns than anybody else uh, in in the NFL in those years. Yeah, and let me just look up this real quick here. In in the years we're talking about, in the Holmgren years from 1992 to 1998, if we're thinking Brett Favre's not this productive quarterback who was worse than Don Mikowski, who was turning the ball over way too much, this guy was the best weapon in the NFL. There were only 12 quarterback seasons in which they threw more than 30 touchdown passes, and half of them are Brett Favre. So, this honestly irritates me. I'm not a huge Brett Favre fan. I think that it's a disservice, however, to his legacy that people think he was just this interception-tossing bum, when the fact of the matter is, nobody threw, it, threw touchdown passes 
at the clip that he did from 1994 through 1998, he might have been the best quarterback of all time. His whole career might not stand up with with guys like Montana or with Peyton Manning or with Brady or some of these other guys. But from 1994 to 1998, there wasn't a more productive scorer than Brett Favre in the history of the NFL. And I would I would argue that. Um, the, the only other guys that can come into contact with that is maybe Brady the last five years, Dan Marino uh, in the, his early part of his career. But to pretend like how Hasselbeck would have been better than Favre, or that Don Mikowski is just such a ludicrous argument that I can't even believe I'm, I'm speaking about it. Okay, this show went on much, much longer than I expected it to, so Matt will definitely be, be back to bring some sanity to Green and Gold Forever after this game against the Detroit Lions, which hopefully will be another win for the Packers. They've beaten Detroit in Wisconsin 21 straight times. Uh, But Detroit looks pretty serious this year, and the Packers can't afford to fall any further behind the leaders in the NFC North, I would think, at this point in the season. And it looks like they're going to have to play the college version of Reggie Bush, who quite clearly heard us criticize him. I believe I might have called him the biggest bust I have seen uh, since I've been watching football, and he's trying to stick it to us. It's obvious that that's what's happening, is he's motivated by what's been said here on Green and Gold Forever. But with that, thank you for tuning in and listening to this. I hope it was okay. This is a very disorganized kind of addition to the the show here, and I hope you had some fun uh, listening to it, and on our future what-ifs, if you'd like to leave a comment on YouTube or on Green and Gold Forever, hopefully uh, if enough people listen to this one, we'll, we'll try to revisit some other what-ifs coming up in the near future. So with that, I'm Eric in uh, Oshkosh, and uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care, everyone.